Jacob, I have a question for you. And my question this week is, what do you do about what they call fake reading? Because, see, I've already told you that we're reading this book for professional development, and I've set up my fake reading plan. So I'm just wondering what you're going to do about fake reading. So when I was introduced to people that have listened to me for a while, kind of know my story with independent reading. But, you know, I had a literacy coach. Technically, she was a literacy specialist, but I had a literacy coach who sat down and talked with me. She goes, Chastain, what do you want in your classroom? What's your ideal classroom? And I thought about it. And I said, I want kids to enjoy reading and writing. And she goes, okay, how much of that is happening in your class now? And I said, maybe, you know, I don't know. I don't remember the number I said, but I remember it was low, right? Something like 20%, 30%, something like that. This is back in the day, brand new English teacher. I'm handing out. No, we didn't. We didn't read books. I didn't even have a library in my classroom. (laughs) I can't even imagine if I could go back in time to view this class as like a bird, you know what I mean? Or like like Uh an ant on the wall or something. I mean, it would be a drone. That's right. It would be, it would be un- recognizable for what I do today, which is so funny to think about. But um, I I didn't have any of that. And so we we just had this conversation and she goes, well, I have two books that I think would be really great for you. And she handed me Book Whisper and Read Aside by Book Whisper by Donald Miller, obviously, and Read Aside by Kelly Gallagher. Um, I read both of them very quick. I came back. I started doing my independent reading instantly because it made sense, right? I was like, this makes sense. Kids should read during reading class. Books should be out during this. And I I knew it. I mean, I read. See, I I read a lot in elementary school. We uh, Deer Time was very popular in my elementary school. In middle school, it was always the class book, right? We would either be listening to an audio book, we'd be doing popcorn reading through something, or they would just hand us a book and then they'd be like, okay, you need to get to this page by Friday or whatever. And so those were my reading experiences in middle school and high school for the most part, other than me reading on my own. So I think some of that was lodged in. Like in my heart, I knew I should be providing this time, but middle school and high school are typically where the fun of reading goes to die because we worry so much about, um, you know, the, the, the test scores and, and it becomes so much more about literature analysis, which, uh, it, it degrades the fun of reading a little bit to class novels. I think that's where that comes from. We've talked about class novels before on the podcast, but I'm digressing. My point is, is I had the same question. I said, what do, how do I know kids are actually reading? If I'm letting them read, how do I know that they are actually reading? How do I know they're making progress? And um, the answer in a lot of those books and from my literature specialist, you know, you talk to them. She was like, you'll know, you know, you read books, you know what kids will say to certain things. And so I've gotten really good at spotting those fake readers, right? You know, one of the telltale signs, they pick a new book every day. Um, a lot of my students, they don't like to take their books home because they ruin them or they have brothers and sisters. They have other things to do. They don't have time to be at home. So a lot of my students re- leave their books on their tables. You've seen this. You come into my room. Mm-hmm. There's books everywhere in my classroom, like stacked, sometimes messily. Sometimes um, they fall on the floor. But for the most part, they're stacked right there on the tables. And I know the kids that are reading something because I'm walking around while they're independently reading. They have the same book. Uh, every day they're making progress. And then I have those kids that just pick out whatever is the, the, whatever the buffet of the table is offering that day, they pick it up, they read. And so you have these fake readers, right? And I have, uh, a few this year. Um, what's funny is it depends on the time because sometimes I get them in a book and they're actually reading, right? And then it takes them about five fake reads, fake reads until they find the real read. You know what I mean? And uh-huh. so there's like this uh, discovery process. I have this one girl, for instance, who she didn't read anything ever. She said the last book she read was like in the fourth grade. I gave her the Poet X. She read the whole thing. She was obsessed with it. She wrote a three-page report of her own volition about this book. She was obsessed with it. Um, she read another book that I gave her. That she absolutely loved. And then she was like, okay, I'm going to read this book. And then she's been fake reading ever since. And I've been like, why? I, I went and asked her and I go, look, I know you're not making progress, 
why are you not, why are you, why, why are you struggling right now to read? And then I go, I was like, be honest. I was like, I'm not, you're not in trouble. I just, I just want to know. So, well, you know, I'm dealing with things at home. Some things happen with my sister. And she's like, honestly, I'm just really not interested in this book. I was like, okay. So that's a lot of preamble, Miss Ochoa. This is going to be a long podcast. I feel like I'm very chatty tonight. <laughs> But my point is, is I have one, when kids are fake reading, I try to have that conversation to where I don't want, the reading's not supposed to be a punishment. I don't want to be like, you didn't read this much, your grade's getting docked 50 points, right? I don't want to approach it as a gotcha. Like, ha, I knew you weren't reading, here's your punishment. Um, It's all about conversation because I truly believe to my core that kids will read if we give them time, choice, And we give them books that are relevant to them. I have never met a reader who fake reads the entire year. I've met a lot of fake readers who do that um, because of one reason. They can't find a book that they connect to. They're distracted by other things. Um, Some of my fake readers do so because they struggle to read. So it becomes hard to find a, a book in middle school that isn't low enough that they feel insulted by reading it. You know what I mean? Like those, they, they read at a third grade level. So, but if you hand them a third grade level book, a lot of times it's embarrassing. So, I mean, middle school is all about that, that social cachet, right? You can't, um, some, some teachers are very good about having those pictures books everywhere. I'm not uh, in these instances. I wish I was because picture books are, if you can get that culture building to where everyone reads picture books, then that low reader who literally needs a low read that might be in a picture book is, there, it's, it's not embarrassing to have that. So when I address this, it's through conversation. It's through figuring out the why behind it. Is it, is it, uh, is it a, a capacity problem? Is it a will problem? Is it uh, they don't know have the right books problem? Is it they are just trying to meander until they find another book? Um, and I mean, that's how I deal with it is I don't stress out about it because I think Everyone fake reads to a capacity. I fake read almost all through college until, I mean, honestly, I fake read my whole life because I wanted to read other stuff, right? The, my teachers wanted me to read The Great Gatsby, and I was in the library reading The Origin of Species and, you know, the A Brief History of Time by, uh, wow, how am I forgetting his name? The famous, the famous astronomer, Ochoa, help me out here. The famous astronomer, Galileo? No. <laughs> it's my History, Stephen Hawking. There we go. Gee, Lord have mercy. <laughs> I knew. So I, I didn't know that for sure, but I have seen that his movie's good. You know, the movie that they made yes, about him yes, was yes, real yes. good. So, I should have caught that. So here's the thing, though. A teacher might have saw me. And they're like, oh, he's fake reading, you know, punish me. But I'm over here doing this because I, I have a different reason for doing that. So that I try to approach it like that. I try to figure out why and then act accordingly. I don't I don't stress out too much, although some days, you know, you can feel like there's too many fake readers. It gets really stressful and you're like, Lord, have mercy. What am I doing? No one's reading. This is horrible. My principal's going to walk in. We're all going to get fired today. Um but that's just anxiety talking. We don't need that, Ochoa. So that's my answer. I don't know if that was too rambling for y'all, but that's it. That's it. That's what I got. That's what you got. Well, welcome, everybody, to Craft and Draft. And uh, that was Jacob Chastain. <laughs> this is Bill Ochoa. And I fake read when I need to. <laughs> so anyway, we what do. are we talking about today? We all fake read when we need to, which I think actually is a great question because we're talking today all about motivation. You know, there's motivation is the is the tricky thing. It is, I th- honestly, I think it's the lifeblood of workshop, which is why I think we're going to have a great conversation about this. But it is, it's, it's the secret sauce of a classroom, right? There's a million and nine ways that people recommend to get kids motivated, but are they really motivated? What does real motivation look like? Is it motivation or coercion? I think is a great question to ask. So that's what we're going to be addressing today. How do we get kids motivated to read and write and how we maintain authentic motivation versus just motivation for a grade, um, to avoid punishment, etc. But ladies and gentlemen, this is Craft and Draft. Welcome Alrighty, Ochoa. I want you, let's start this off. I've been talking for nine minutes so far, and that is way too long for me to talk on my own. When you think of motivation, what is motivation? How do you define motivation in a classroom setting? What does that, what does that mean to you for students? Well, I mean, 
when kids want to be in your room, when they, when it doesn't take a whole lot for them to start working, I guess, when they seem excited about the work to me, that shows motivation. Um, you know, I've never been one to, first of all, I think when I was younger, I didn't really have the money to spend on um, candy and all this other stuff. So I have never really been one to do that. My thinking is if the work is um, relevant to them and meaningful to them, then they'll probably uh, be motivated to do it most of the time. Uh, but I do have some that I think have been, uh, I don't know if it's trained, but they've they've been conditioned to not be motivated because it's either A, the cool thing to do, or you mentioned earlier, they read on a lower level or write on a lower level and they don't want anybody to find them out. Uh, and so, or sometimes I think I've had some girls for sure in the past, um, they were more motivated by looking cute and being smart was not considered cute, especially years ago. And I mean, I had one that she was just, she was really precious, but none of the people thought she was very smart. I did because I knew what kind of work she was turning in, but she would like play like she wasn't, you know what I mean? And then there was a question I had to ask and the answer was going to be, you know, Shakespeare that was, and it was in seventh grade and she, she just belted that uh, answer out and said Shakespeare and then even named the play and and exactly who said it. And they all looked at her and I think all those, she accidentally had the answer because she usually plays like she doesn't. And they all looked at her and went, I thought you were dumb. I mean, they really literally said that. And she, I think she finally got tired of that act. So after that, they realized she was probably the smartest one in the class, but it was an act. So she was motivated in a different direction. So I think it's just kind of interesting. It's it's what drives a student and what drives each person. And every one of us has something that's a little bit different with motivation. But I think every teacher would probably strive for internal motivation versus external motivation if you whenever you can get it. How you about know, you? Well, I have there's uh this we okay so we when we were coaches we had a conversation similar to this where we talked about we we had a long conversation for a long time about like our beliefs because we were trying we were modeling 180 days and they start off with their beliefs and their new book by the way for people that don't know 180 days by Penny Kittle and Kelly Gallagher they have a new book called uh, the four essential studies but they do the same thing they literally at the beginning of each uh, genre that they talk about. They say, these are our beliefs about essays. These are our beliefs about poetry. These are our beliefs about digital composition. Um, it's really cool. But we we liked that idea. And we had this conversation about uh, what what motivates students. Like we had the, what of our beliefs about that? And we had teachers that straight up said they're not motivated. They don't want to do this, right? And we've and we've dealt with them as coaches. We've dealt with them in professional development. You know, someone walks in and like, yeah, but kids just don't care, right? We've I've had teachers say this on our campus. You know what I mean? Like we've we've I've run into these mm-hmm. these people a lot, and it's be, you know. I don't want to talk about them too much, but my the point that I'm trying to make by bringing them up is we have we live in a system that uh, disinterest kids' curiosity. Right? I feel like elementary, um, good elementary, uh, really does incentivize play and discovery and creativity, and the love of reading and writing really shines through because there's less tests um, to deal with, so to speak. And now there's some grade levels where those tests really do crop up. And I think that's where you see the the tightening of the the lens, so to speak, on creativity and fun. Um, but for the most part, it's a little more open. They get to middle school and high school and the tests show up and everything else, the pressure's on and uh, it, it becomes very restrictive. And we have the system that does not incentivize students to care, right? We it, it is uh, it's almost like dragging them through stuff, and then you know we we want them to 
We want them to do well on these tests, obviously. We have said on this podcast often that we live in the same world as everyone else. We're public school teachers. We, we, we deal with the same exact things as everyone else does. Um, but uh, we are people who believe that you get to those – you can teach test-taking skills and you can teach the test on, in its own genre, so to speak. And you can also have all this authentic teaching that really does help kids in the long term be just successful people, be successful business people, be successful just in their lives. And that, I think, is the hard thing to capture because our system doesn't want that. The system that we live in currently incentivizes test prep and does all of this. And when you take test prep to its maximum, when you that's all you're focused on, now you're dragging kids through passages, answering questions. They're constantly bombarded with why they're wrong when you do nothing but question and answer type scenarios in classrooms. When you set up your classroom to be a gauntlet of will you be right today or will you be wrong today, you are literally attacking students with uh, this 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 message to them. Either, you know, if they're just at great, you're awesome, you're amazing, or if you're horrible, or if you're not good at these answering these questions, you're constantly telling them that they're bad. And then you get this lack of motivation. You get this false sense of, if this isn't for a grade, why do it? You get all of that. And I, I think that is the biggest challenge is that sometimes um, when you're a teacher trying to do what we're trying to do, whether you're in middle school or high school, sometimes you inherit students who have been conditioned by a system to care about the wrong things. And I think I think that's the fundamental problem with motivation, and I think that is, I think that's something that we have to um, not only address but be comfortable with. We have to be comfortable with that we get kids who may only be motivated to write because they have been conditioned that they must write when a teacher prompts them. And I, I feel like you've experienced this, have you not? Yeah, I have. I've I have several. You know, over over the years when. Especially when I was the one doing workshop and many people around me were not. And um, they were doing long worksheets and uh, prescriptive type writing. And so when I would get these students, they were like lost. They didn't know what they were doing or how to go about it. So then because they, and they wanted to make sure that they were right before they ever even put a word down. So it really stifled their ability to write. But I think I think you're you hit on something when you talked about creativity. I, I do think that when we uh, the brain loves novelty, the brain loves to learn, the brain loves to discover. I mean that's that's our natural tendency. So I think if you could use those or that idea to your advantage. So if you could bring creativity in the classroom, if you could allow them to explore new ideas that interest them, uh, and still in the same time keep it within the window of your of your standard and and continue to move them forward i think they'll be more motivated uh to do those things because uh when i think that's why why they're conditioned not to be um motivated is because we either a give the answer to them too fast so then they sit there and wait for us to give the answer to them or um we have conditioned them to be externally uh, motivated through different types of things that we give kids, such as candy or other stuff, and uh, or um, we we just don't have a you know assignments that are broad enough to capture all of um, their desire for learning and and uh, discovering and experiencing new things. I think the same thing goes on with reading. Um, you know, you were talking about the picture books earlier and, uh, I do, you know, I am the one that has picture books in my room and it is funny because I do allow the kids to pick those up periodically. Some days I'll say, Oh, not picture books today. And then, uh, but some days I'll say, okay, today y'all can do picture books. So, cause that lets me know who gravitates to them. And then that gives me an idea, but enough of them will gravitate to them that it isn't embarrassing. I kind of think it's cool, but sometimes the picture books that I have out though, uh, the language and everything in it is pretty high level on some of them. And so, and they're more precise and uh, concise language. And so uh, due to that, they're at least ex exposed to different type of vocabulary type things. And they think they're 
getting a head up because they're uh, against me, you know, if you will, they're like, not against me, but they're thinking they're like pulling one over on me because, but what they don't know is, is I'm actually watching them and I make sure I have picture books out that will somewhat challenge some of them. So, but I do think that they're challenged because they get that choice and I think they're motivated due to choice. So I don't know. I, you know, it's funny is the, I have a, we have a podcast episode planned or at least an idea where we were going to talk about like kind of the, the honesty of our classroom. But I I have one that I want to pull up here, which is in, so you talked about kids waiting for answers, you know, usually I'm pretty good with wait time. Um, but I had noticed this week specifically that in my mini lessons, oftentimes, you know, it's, it's, I really do host my mini lessons like a, a discovery exercise. So if I pull up a poem, for instance, and I, I want to hit on whatever our standard is today, maybe it's theme, maybe it's figurative language, whatever. I, I, I kind of, I pre-plan a question or two, maybe three, maybe four, depending on the day of what I want to hit on, right? I'll kind of, uh, outline where I want the conversation to go, but often I let it just kind of free flow. And sometimes I just ignore my sticky notes altogether of questions. And, you know, we go off, it just depends on the engagement of the students, how well they're connected to the poem, if it's too hard, too easy, et cetera, et cetera. And I noticed this week specifically that I would give my students like a prompt, like, I want y'all to think about why would the author use this? Go. And I had so many students just sitting there just waiting, right? And I was like, I just, I just had this thought. I was walking around and I was like, man, I was like, have I been feeding them too many responses? You know, like I, I immediately, and I, I've been so conditioned, uh, just in my own philosophy of, I, I blame students last, right? Cause I believe we set up the conditions for things. I believe that we, we do this. You, you don't win anything by blaming the students. So you need to look at every other aspect before you get to them. Right. Cause you can't, you can't control their, what they bring necessarily. So I try to think of everything I can control first, if something's not going wrong. And then I go from there. And so I went through that thought process. I was like, man, have I, have I just been barreling through? Have I been just ignoring that? You know, and I went through all of this and, uh, and I don't have the answer to that, by the way, because it was this week and I just kind of altered as I went and I forced them to have more think time. And then eventually I got them going and rolling, but made the mini lesson go a little bit longer. But this, I think this happens all the time to where students, and I mean, this is really hard in secondary specifically. I know we have all elementary uh, teachers, but in secondary, you know, they, they see, you know, how many teachers a day, eight, six, seven, depending Mm -hmm. on their schedule. Um, That's a lot of people, that's a lot of variance and what's expected of them. And it's also variance, not even just like uh, what's expected of them from teacher teacher, but just what the, what the content requires, right? There's not in history, like there is some analysis there, but in middle school history, you know, it, a lot of it is like just understanding what happened and understanding the application of that. English isn't so much, at least the way we teach it. Like I handed them, uh, a Franz Kafka excerpt this week. And I said, go and they looked at me like they were fish out of water but it was it was meant to be difficult i did it because i was like let's see what happens i love handing students that um and they were they didn't want to grapple with it at first they wanted me to guide them they wanted to hold that they wanted me to scaffold it all the way through they wanted me to hold their hand all the way through and i refused to do it and it frustrated them but you know what we eventually got to a great discussion and i I feel like this is also a part of the motivation conversation, which is I feel like sometimes in order to motivate, we feel like we have to hold their hand. And in my experience, sometimes when we hold their hands too much, that's what ruins motivation. I don't know. I mean, mm-hmm. that it's that overly scaffolding. It's where scaffolds become – it's no longer supporting, but it's actually a detriment. And I feel like that is – I feel like that's an evolution of my thinking. I haven't always thought about scaffolding like this. Do you, do you feel that way too though, that there – that sometimes the sometimes in the in the name of support we're really just holding kids back and that's what ruins motivation well i i've always kind of um you know because i've worked with teachers for a long time so i've always kind of realized or have noticed and i'm guilty too of 
Yeah, we all are. Rescuing the students Mm -hmm. too soon. We intervene too soon, Uh, especially in classes where we have a diverse intellectual group, if you will. Um, You you know what I mean? Where you have the lower level kids as well as high level because, you know, some of our classes are have all different types. And so, you know, we're supposed to differentiate, but sometimes we differentiate to the point where we actually rescue the student before we ever let them grapple with something. I think learning comes when they have to grapple, where they have that dissonance. I heard somebody one time in a lecture say, the learning happens in the dissonance and not where they're so frustrated, but where there's a little bit of a rub, if you will, a little bit of friction. And I think that's what happened with your kids while they, and they ha- and you have to give them that think time because that's what happened with your kids with that Kafka. They looked at it and went, what? Which I thought about that and went, what? But anyway, um, but the thing is, they looked at it at first. And so what we've got to teach the students, it's not that it's hard at first. It's that give it some time, read it, mull it over, think about it. And that takes time. And I think when we start looking at our schedule, our scope and sequence, and we start going, this is supposed to be a two-day unit. And if I don't give them the answers, then we're never going to get done, you know, or something like that. So uh, I do know that, you may, that when you said history a second ago, it made me think of a time when I was actually as an academic coach and it was, it was before uh, I think I even had met you, but I was, uh, I was trying to model for our history teachers. Cause when I was an academic coach, I did all the subjects. I wasn't a literacy coach. I was actually an academic where I dealt with every subject. And so <clears throat> anyway, excuse me, but I was trying to show this history teacher because he was always giving them the answers, giving them the answers. And so we were doing a coaching setup, a coaching cycle. And uh, I, anyway, I was, it was my turn to model. So I wanted to model wait time. And so I'm sitting there and I'm doing this lesson. He's watching. And I think, let's say the answer is 18, 12. I don't really remember. Let's just say that for the sake of, of this discussion. But anyway, I asked the question and I waited. I waited because the students had it in their notes. And so I was just waiting and he goes, Oh, and then, I mean, it, he didn't give it very long at all. And he, he's sitting over there and he goes, Oh my gosh, y'all know the answer. It's 1812. <laughs> so I'm like, and this little girl looks up at me and she goes, you wanted us to figure that out. Didn't you? <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> <"Yes."> <laughs> so anyway, even the kids know, but there's nothing more powerful in a classroom than that quiet wait time. Uh, it puts a lot of pressure on the teacher. It puts a lot of pressure on the students, especially if you're being observed. It's really got a lot of pressure. Are they going to do it? It's it's interesting. Even when I work with adults and I'm working with other trainers and we're working together, it's funny to watch them kind of panic and because the teachers know my, my participants know that somebody's going to give them the answer somebody will give them the answer but if you wait long enough it's not going to be me you know I, I want you to mull it over and figure it out every once in a while I have to step back in but but that's the thing is it's uh it, you know the kids kind of They'll, they'll wait you out if you don't watch it. So, and, and it's, I think it's an art to know when to step back in, but I think you got to watch stepping back in too early. Well, and so I want to, I want to, I want to go back to this Kafka thing for a second, because oh. <clears throat> I feel like this is such a, uh, I feel like this is such a, a great thing that people – I feel like our listeners are people that might want to use something like this because it seems intense. If anyone who, who knows Kafka, just because he's – you know, it's 1906. I mean, it's back in the day, but it uh, it's it's a great – it's short piece. It's a, it's a micro-fiction piece is what it is. But if you Google Give It Up by Franz Kafka, you can find it. It's literally about a paragraph long. Um, but it's about this guy who's late, and he's wandering through, and – uh, he notices he's always he's latest to normal and he can't find the way right that's the quote he's like I don't know the way he asks the cop he goes do you know the way here and the cop says for me you want to know the way and he goes yes I said since I cannot find it myself and he goes give it up give it up he said and turned away with a sudden jerk like people who want to be alone with their laughter and I had spent a lot of time with my students talking about sim uh, how how artists use 
symbolism and stuff, how in, in mature literature, not everything is as it seems, how conversations can be allusions to other things, how uh, ideas and words can point to other things. I was like, it also cannot. I was like, I, I told them this. I said, I was like, people who love literature and love analyzing can also go too deep. Sometimes rain is rain. Sometimes, you know, like not everything is the green light across the lake, right? Like right. <laughs> some things can mean other things and some things aren't. And you, that's the fun of literature is debating this. I, and I told them, I was like, you're, um, and I had this guy, I had this conversation with my seventh grade honors, which was, I was like, you guys are on the track to really be in some advanced literature classes. I was like, that is, that's the path you're headed down. I was like, being able to articulate why you think something is the beauty of literature classes. I was like, you're going to encounter people that are teachers that want you to think a certain way about a certain symbol. But I was like, real literature analysis is taking what you get from it and defending it. I was like, it's not enough to have an opinion. You have to have an opinion with credibility, right? You have to be able to defend it. Um, and now that, that's what it really, what it was. So I told them, I said, I've already prefaced this piece by saying that there's symbolism, that there's other meanings here. And you know what? It took a while for us to get there, but I said he was lost. I was like, how many ways can you be lost? That was my question for the day. It's like, how can you be lost? And they go, well, I'm lost going somewhere. I'm like, awesome. That's a great one. You can be lost going somewhere. What else? I'm like, well, I can be lost in a, in a math problem. And I was like, sweet. That's a great one. And they go, well, you can be lost spiritually. And I was like, awesome. Yes. And, you know, and then, and then you start thinking about it. We have all these different ways where you can be lost, right? I almost felt like Miss Ochoa where I start playing with a word and seeing all the rabbit go. holes that can go down. <laughs> all the rabbit holes. I cannot believe you brought that back up twice. I cannot believe that. <laughs> you, are, you are not nice. I cannot believe that. <laughs> Mr. Uh, Sprint. <laughs> I hope I hope our listeners don't quit this podcast with all the inside I, jokes. I hope they don't either. That's so funny. That's a great one though. Anyway, I, it was a good thing. <laughs> I felt like I really did though. In terms of your word work that you do, which I think you're a genius at, oh, I. You well, this is a real side subject. Sorry, podcast listeners. I had a student show me a picture of someone, and they go, "Oh, look at my friend! Look at what they did!" And I go, "Oh, that's in Miss." I was like, "I was like, what period does she have Miss Ochoa?" She goes, "How did you know this was in Ochoa's class?" And I go, "Oh, because the the word wall is filled with all of these words everywhere." I was like, "Hers the only one that looks like that." And she goes, "Oh, so." Um, when I'm saying that you're a word person, I mean, that's your jam. So in yeah. any case, we're talking about lost. We're doing all this. And it was a great conversation where we are, we're, we're not, now we're not only thinking about the story, thinking about author's purpose, but we're now we're analyzing what are all the nuances to this word? I mean, think, think about the change that we could have in this society if people actually thought about the nuances of what words meant. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, think about how many people are manipulated by headlines, by social media posts, by the news, just because of intentional word play and misuse to manipulate people to believe something. I mean, it happens everywhere and it happens all the time it happens to you it happens to me because we read a headline and we go oh my god i can't believe that happened and we don't have time to read the article so we scroll past it but that is that's intentional by people that want us to think a certain way and there are vast media and political interests that want us to think a certain way based on these things. And I mean, just like, this is the the level that I'm talking about when it comes to engagement. The, it's engaging to a student when you take their world and you, and they've only thought about lost in one context. And now mm-hmm. they walk away from your classroom and think about it in 10, right? Right. I mean, that's engagement to me. Well, that's like last year I had a student that <laughs> she was she was sitting there and and she was like, Miss Ochoa, you sure know how to ask the questions. <laughs> oh my goodness. And they were sitting there really trying to think it. Well, later on, I was kind of um told I had to ask, we all had to ask the same question. So it kind of took me out of my question asking art, if you will. And that same girl, like this was like a few months later, goes, You're these are not your questions. 
So she knew immediately when I had to change my questions, you know, for my other school where I was at, where they made us all kind of do the exact same thing for a while. And so you could really tell. And I I think, uh, and they became less motivated when it, when they knew it wasn't me that I was asking them the more basic questions. Kids do like to think, but going back to your scaffold question, I don't know if I really answered it a minute ago, but I think when, when you look at, and I'm going to pull in some nerdy uh, education here, but Lev Vygotsky is the one who talks about the zone of proximal development. And he says that when we're actually working with students, that when we work with them, you know, well, there's, you know, he's so deep, but by working with them in that zone of proximal development, we use scaffolding either to pull them up or push them up. And then we use a community to help them uh, learn so that they can be independent later. And and I think that's um, when you scaffold, I think if you move them too fast or if you don't move them fast enough, either direction, you're looking at uh, not motivating the student, if you will. I think the motivation is within that zone of proximal development. And I think that's something that he hit on. And um, I think it's somewhat developmental. But I do think that... Uh, when you are looking at your classes and what you're doing uh, and knowing your student, that uh, that's one, I don't know, place to look and reflect on. Am I meeting these kids in a level where they can meet me? Because sometimes you can move too high and then they fall out. So, you know, it's really really kind of a touchy situation. But if you never remove the scaffold, though, if you never remove the scaffold, then um, you're not going to, and we talked about this the other day in our PLC, if you never move that scaffold, then you're not, you're not helping the students either. And I don't, you know, we use scaffolds and buildings and all kinds of stuff, but I've never seen a finished building have a scaffold around it. I just have it. And I think it's the same way with our students. We have to pull away and let them uh, go on their own. And of course, using another analogy, birds push their kids out the out of the nest and they have to fly, you know, they have to, but they know when it's time to do that. And so I think that's what we have to do as teachers as well. You know, this really makes me think about something that I've been wrestling with on how to articulate this, um, which is there are, and this is kind of getting in the weeds. I, I'm going to try not to go too deep on it for people that don't uh, just follow a lot of stuff like this. But on Twitter, for instance, there's a lot of conversation about the the removal of standardized tests, right? We, we've talked about how we're not fans of them here, but there are people out there who justify these things. And we're not talking about standardized tests necessarily in the state format. Um, standardized tests can mean – that's the problem with, with that term, by the way, is that it means a bunch of different things. Um, a real standardized test is actually normed. It goes through a process. There is um, – there, there's there's research behind the questions. There's all of this other stuff. Um, and a lot of people have said that standardized tests are racist or standardized tests um, do not account for all the diversity in thinking, such as neurodiverse students like my son, for right. instance, who's autistic or something like that. Um, but a lot of people have justified uh, – some standardized testing because they talk about how this can find kids who may or may not perform well in a classroom uh, because of teacher choices, because of the content, because of motivation, et cetera. And it can actually identify them as someone who is gifted and talented. That's someone that does have a super large or high IQ, so to speak, and actually save them from just dawdling in, in lower classes. Right. And so there, there, there's these cases being made. Um, and I, I, I find this conversation really fascinating because we, in the realm of what we're trying to do in terms of motivation, I have found that when we focus really heavily on something that is standardized. I have argued that when we want kids to be free, when we want them to make these choices, if you re- if freedom is really at the core of what you're teaching, if equity, if equality is really the core of what you're doing, then you have to 
you have to embrace that students with knowledge, with power, with, with, uh, agency, they're going to go in ways that you didn't predetermine, right? They're, they're going to take your lesson and go off in a different way. And I feel like we, we, um, as a team and as you and I, as, uh, just, educators, we account for that by allowing them to choose what they want to write about, to choose their forms, to choose their focus. You know, sometimes we limit it to focus in on what they need to do, but for the most part, they're choosing, they're doing all of these things. We're trying to make that as authentic as possible. And I feel like that is, that's how we deal with it. But the interesting, so I feel like that's us dealing with this standardized piece, but I, I feel like what gets missed a lot is sometimes we scaffold students, um, only for the standardized side, right? We we offer scaffolds for answering test questions. We give them strategy after strategy. Um, Teachers Pay Teachers is filled with endless strategies that you can buy and teach students and get them to perform well on stuff. But often I feel like we don't, we don't, uh, I feel like and I'm speaking for myself here too, is sometimes I, I scaffold least in choice. And I have come to find out that that is, that's what I'm doing in conferencing, right? I think that's why I've gained so many, why I've made so much progress in conferencing is because when I conference, often I'm scaffolding that choice, right? I'm teaching them how to navigate. Okay. You have 10 ideas. Which one of these is better, right? When I'm modeling, I'm trying to scaffold. Okay. So what does it look like to find a line that you like? What does it look like to give up on a piece? What does it look like to pick the right word choice? What does it look like to get halfway through a book and realize this isn't the book for you? What does it look like to realize the book is too hard for you, right? Those are all scaffolds um, mm-hmm. for this independent choice. But I feel like sometimes we sometimes we 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 apply so much choice, but we we don't scaffold that choice. And then almost on the on the other side, we might over scaffold the choice, right? And I feel like that is, hey, here's three books that you have to choose from, right? And I'm not talking literature circles where it's an actual uh you know strategy or or pedagogical choice that you're trying to do, but like, here's this, where we try to limit what they're doing to scaffold, but we do it all the time, not just for like a limited amount of time. And I don't, and that's something I've been grappling with, which is why I'm kind of stumbling over my thoughts here is it's this, it's this constant between there are reasons to scaffold things. There are reasons to standardize things. There can be benefits as a teacher. We have to know when to step in and support students with these scaffolds, but also not rob them of choice, voice, and uh, agency over what they're trying to do. Because the moment we do that, I feel like we just we we have immediately and all and sometimes irrevocably taught them that the teacher is going to te- is going to guide them through every choice, and that is a horrible precedent to teach kids for twelve years. It's an absolutely and we know these people. We know we we know these people in the real world, right? So we we mm-hmm. meet people who have never had to actually live with the consequences of a choice, and that it's a part of freedom, a part of freedom, a part of equity, a part of all of this is giving people the tools that they need to make these choices, but also deal with the bad choices they make. And that's I feel like that's nervous for teachers. That is that is nerve wracking because we don't want kids, we don't want them to deal with it. We want them to do well, make good grades, show progress and do all of that. And I feel like that's a limit on our system. And I don't know. I don't don't know. Like I said, I'm grappling with this as I'm speaking. Well, I mean, one of the things that comes to my mind uh, are grades. And, you know, I've worked a lot with GT kids. As a matter of fact, that's what my master's is in, is dealing with the GT kids, being able to test them, et cetera. But working with, and I've had whole classes where every child is a GT. I've worked in GT programs too. And one of the things that I have found, and I've worked at the high school level and at the middle school level, I've not worked at the elementary level. Anyway, the one of the things that I have found is they, at least in, in our system, they are driven by grades, because when you get up to the high school level, you're looking at a huge competition for the top 10 and the top two and the number one in grade point average. And and I remember uh, at the high school level where my decision as a teacher would determine 
who was going to be first or second. And boy, that's, you know, when you start thinking about how you give free 100s, for example, that impacts every child up there, especially the ones who are uh, going for the top two or the top 10. And it impacts them because you're busy giving out 100s to people that might, may or may not deserve it, especially with writing, you know. And um, and then, you know, nitpicky here, or if you're over the top and not giving free 100s, but you're such a hard teacher that when they get you, they can't, once they get you, you're so hard that, and grades so difficult. To, and, and I've known teachers who've been really proud of, well, by golly, I gave them that 69 or that 72, you know, whatever. And I, you know, my my C is like an A in everybody else's class. Well, that also impacts this grade competition that we have at the high school level. And so, um, so that impacts motivation, right? But these kids are so wanting that perfect score that they lean on those scaffolds because I know if they do do that just right. So let's just say a worksheet. Let's just do that. They would rather have a worksheet because there's a right and a wrong answer versus free choice and all of that. So, but yet these are the students, the GT students are geared. They really need to have the free choice. They need to have um, the opportunity to fail. They need to have those opportunities to be successful and to make those decisions, but they so are afraid to do so because it might impact their GPA if they make the wrong choice that they freeze. And uh, so that's something that I've noticed uh, when it comes to uh, motivation and grades and, um, you know, how we as teachers make these decisions that we don't always realize the helpful impact. And when we do set them up, you know, like you said, the teacher making the choice for them, uh, you know, then that that can really hinder a student's progress. And then uh, going back to the idea of of scaffolding and things like that, or strategies. I think we mentioned this the other day when we were talking about this, and that was you got to be careful that your learning is you. We want the students to learn the skill, right? We want the students to learn to think on their own and make decisions on their own and to write and to read and and be productive citizens and to be to extend themselves when they need to. But sometimes we use uh, strategies to the point where the learning is not about the learning we want. The learning becomes about the strategy. Do you know the acronym and do you know it correctly? And so sometimes we got to be careful about that as well. So those are some things that I think impact motivation and learning. Well, and I think this is, I love your point about the, how the system incentivizes certain things. Right. And I feel like this is the, the, I think this is the plight of any educator trying to do something that is authentic, whether it's craft and draft or whatever you're trying to do, right? Is you work in a system that rewards standardization. And this goes back to my point that I understand that people have defended standardization for some instances. Like I said, it can, it can pinpoint uh, gifted students um, that might not be successful in a system or successful where they're at, et cetera, et cetera. It can do a lot of good things, but I think the standardization of certain things, this over-focusing on test scores, which is brought on by No Child Left Behind in the Bush era and then later exacerbated and accelerated in the Obama era of uh, Race to the Top, um, is this this idea that everything can be boiled down to scores. And, you know, I understand why politicians might think that because it's easy. You know, they want numbers. They want to point to things that grow or decrease. You know, that, that is, that is the, the, the bread and butter of a political platform, so to speak. Um, but in education, I feel like our, and I feel like this is the battle of our time is 
what the heck are we talking about when we talk about growth, right? Like we, we talk about growth in numbers all day long, right? We have data walls and we have charts and we have PDSA walls. We have all of this stuff, but what does it mean? What does it actually mean in terms of learning? And I feel like teachers who are invested in this, administrators who are invested in this are trying to provide the nuance to all, all of this, because I got to tell you, I have students who have increased drastically in their reading ability, in their comprehension, really, in their writing ability specifically as well, um, who do not show that on the test. They don't. I, I have many that do not. I have kids who are writing powerful pieces that are using language in powerful ways, Um Rightfully empowered is filled with students who they did. They, I mean, they did great and they wrote amazing things and they've, they've shown all of this growth. A lot of them did decent on the test, but they weren't like doing gangbusters. You know what I mean? Like it didn't like they, they weren't they didn't go from, you know, like from the bottom to the top five percent or whatever. Um, in fact, if you look at the scores of our school that I had in the top, the top 10 spots of kids that scored well on our state test last year, all 10 were my students last year. All 10 wrote the least amount of pieces in my classroom. All 10 read the least amount of books in my class last year. What does that tell you about the test? Huh. All 10. Yeah. I did the data. I did the numbers myself. I dug through and what does that tell you? That means that, that it's gameable. A lot of our top, kids, so to speak, in this system are taught because they play the game well, or they're uniquely wired to play the game well. You know this. You've had students who will do nothing in your class. They don't really read. They don't really write. And they pass the test with flying colors in 10 seconds, right? We, I think you've had this. Our team members had this. Like, I have definitely had this. And it's like, you know, they'll probably be okay in life, but will they? I have also come into contact with students who have graduated, who have aren't doing anything. I people in my classroom. So let's go back to my time. I have friends who went to school who were, they were more successful than me. They passed all their tests. They were in honors classes for people that don't know. I failed almost every class I was ever in in high school. I took a lot of summer school, but those people, they were at the top of their class. What are they doing now? They're, they're struggling. Right. And I fundamentally believe it comes down to this agency over education. I had my own agency agency, built because I didn't have a family. I didn't have all of this stuff. So I developed a love for education for a variety of different reasons. And I, I learned the value of working for knowledge. And I think that's what, that's what that, uh, and I had teachers that supported that and that's what drove my success. And some of it drove my work ethic at the very least. But I feel like some people who are naturally gifted at just living in the system, they miss this work ethic part, right? They miss this, uh, this choice part, this authenticity part. So when they get to the real world and nothing's catered to this, when they, when you don't have to answer a standardized question to be a gifted business person or a gifted salesperson or whatever it is that you have to be in an American society based on capitalism, you fail and you fail hard and you have to learn or you suffer. And I feel like, I feel like we have a lot of kids. I feel like a lot of kids go to college and drop out because of that too, because college is, as much bad rap as they're getting, I feel like they're changing too. They're starting to open up more to um, freedom of choice and, and essays, and there's not really an essay format anymore. Kelly Gallagher, I had him on Teach Me Teacher, which I haven't posted, but he talked about that. Penny uh, has been uh, teaching. He talked about how Penny Kittle has been teaching a college course on writing and how a lot of them show up wanting to write these very basic essays and they fail because colleges aren't looking for that anymore. And I, th I feel like all of this is wrapped up in this conversation of what do we do? And when we talk about engagement, we talk about rewarding kids for authentic work. I mean, I think there's real world consequences for not doing it. No, I agree. And, and it really does. If, if students, the process is really important, you know, and, um, and, and, and if they're, if they don't know how to work through a process and strive for that, you know, then and I do think it, because life isn't easy. There's nothing about life that's easy, I don't think. And eventually somebody's going to find their, their, you know, their wall, you know, and, and how do you, how do you climb it? Do you go under it? Do you go around it? What do you do? And I mean, you know, 
shoot. I mean, it's just really hard. And so I agree with you there. And the other thing I was thinking about as you were talking is that uh, one of the main questions that I ask kids that I think make a difference, and and I got it from my mom, to be real honest. And my mom was an educator. Both my parents were, as y'all know. But um, one of the things that she taught me was this question. But what do you think about it? Lots of kids, and even, you know, I've got this big project that you think is a rabbit hole going down the, you know, but <laughs> I've got kids that are doing some good work. And I think they you are know great, that. by the way. The ones you show me, they're fantastic. Yeah. So, and I mean, I've even got some on levels that look pretty good. So, anyway, and they're, it's just a different, that is a little bit of a different thing, but the, the end result is similar. But anyway, but the thing is, is the kids are like, is this right? That's what they want to know. And I'm like, well, you know, I, there's the criteria. It's on the, on the, but yeah, but is it good? And I'm like, well, what do you think of it? What, what is your opinion of it? Is this something you can be proud of for yourself? Is this something that you've learned anything about? I mean, what have you learned from doing this project? And so from there, it changes the whole conversation. And then they're like, well, I wrote more poems than I've ever written before. Oh, and I found some that that fit that theme. And or they'll say, I've never had to write about myself before. And so because they have to have a write about an author, you know, and they're the author. So it's kind of an interesting uh, thing that they do. And so I'm like, well, what have you learned about books? And uh, they're like, well, I, I realized that that uh, it takes a lot to make a book. You know, so it's just interesting the different things that they've all looked at. But my big question, and I learned it from my mom, and that is, what do you think about your work? And I think from there, and and I mean, if they don't like it, then I go, what can you do to make it? You know, well, what do you need to do to get it where you want it to be? Well, it looks like I need to add, well, let's look at a book and see what it looks like. So, I take them, they're all creating a poetry book for everybody who doesn't know what they're doing, they're creating a poetry anthology, but I'll go and take them to an actual poetry anthology and I say, well, what's in this book that's not in yours? So there's their standard. It's not because of me, it's like, this is what people do when they write poetry anthologies. So how do you, you know, do you like what they're doing here? Yeah. Okay. Then what can you do to make your book have that? I guess I got to go back and, you know, and I'm like, well, okay, I'm looking forward to seeing the work. And so, you know, when I can get the students to start talking to me about their work and what they put into it and what they have learned from it, and is it something that they feel like they've grown from, then, and I don't always do that in a formal way. I usually do it like just in a conversation. Like sometimes those are my post conferences. So, um, boy, when, when I do that, then they, and they're proud of it, then that, that's, pretty cool i had years ago i had this he was a gt student in that gt class and it was this big huge project that we were doing again you know me i like these big projects but it was a big project they get to do a lot of choice in these projects i can't remember exactly what it was but i looked at him and i said well oh um is what do you think of it and he goes well it's not really very good and i said okay well then i guess i don't need to accept it yet for a grade what, you know, and how I go, well, I mean, if you don't think it's very good, then why should I grade it? I'm not going to grade something that's not good. Why would I spend my time? My time's valuable. And he goes, so I said, I, I tell you what, I'll give you two more days, get it turned in. He comes back and it's a, it, he did a really good job. And I go, well, what do you think about it? I asked that same question. He goes, I didn't think I could do it. I really kind of like it. And it's like, okay, well, see, now you know what you can do. So I think sometimes they don't realize they've, they've never had to put the time or the grind in, if you will, to to making something uh, work for them. And that's writing. Uh, that's the same way with writing or reading a long book. If they've never, ever had that success, then sometimes they don't know how to have that success. And so I think that once you get, it's kind of like that old saying, success breeds success. If you can figure out a way to give them some success in that classroom, However small it is, sometimes that's just enough to motivate them. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, this has been the episode of Craft and Draft. What a great way to end. All about success, creating success. If you enjoyed this episode, do me a favor. I got a couple 
couple to do's for you, ladies and gentlemen. And you hit subscribe, so or follow, whatever it is on your app, whatever you're listening <laughs> to. They they've been changing them, but hit that button. That way you never miss an episode. We drop an episode every single Friday, and we talk all about reading writing workshop authentic practices and everything in between from two teachers down here in Texas doing the real job of public education teaching. Hit that star button. If you enjoy this episode, hit that five star button. Leave a review for the podcast. It really does help us rank among the top educator podcasts. It also messes with the algorithm to make sure people just all organically find the podcast. But that's Pam Ocho. I'm Jacob Chastain. This is Craft and Draft. Come back next week for another fantastic episode. And as always, as you know that we are here for you. <laughs>